Welcome to the Pastors Podcast. Pastor Scott here with Pastor Matt. Hey. Matt, it's been, Matt, it's been a while. Me? Yeah. It's been like a month. I don't month think so. Has it been a while? I feel like it's been like a, like, like a month. You know, it's we, like we, a, we, we normally don't go that long without getting to do this together. It's like a, a Daniel Day-Lewis. I only show up at, you know, every once in a while, but then, you know, hit it out of the park when I show up. When you do, it is yeah. super, super <laughs> good. <laughs> Uh, we're, uh, with Matt and I today is Matt Sorens, uh, with world relief. Hey, Matt. Hey, great to be with you guys. Thanks, man. We, um, if, for those of you who've been at Cornerstone for a while, uh, Matt was here a few years back, uh, preached. He's the, the author of seeking refuge, which is a book that we've had a number of people, um, uh, we've recommended to a number of people, just a great resource on, the global refugee crisis and the role of the, the, the call, not just the role, but the call of the church um, in that. Uh, for those of you who who haven't been around or maybe you're new to Cornerstone, for those of you who've joined the church in the last couple of years, um, Matt, Matt, maybe would you mind just introducing yourself and, and maybe explain a little bit about the work of, what, all right, what do you want, Klein Hands? Well, I, I, you, you, he's got a new book coming out. So he's got a new book came out in May, Inalienable as well. Don't you, Matt? That is true, which yeah, may is still a ways off, but yeah, yeah. but you can pre-order, wait, wait, it, you can pre-order wait, it, it, it now with Eric Costanzo and Daniel <laughs> Yang. So I'm just you saying, are. you gotta, you gotta be up on the latest, you gotta be up on the latest, the latest, uh, releases. Apparently not enough good guest research on my pastor's Seriously, podcast. seriously. <laughs> just, just saying you have to, you know, you gotta be, gotta be aware of the, the wonderful content that's being put out. That's all. That's all I'm saying. All right, fair enough. So, so other than the book coming out in May, Matt, you you have a role with World Relief and with Evangelical Immigration Table. Uh, can you just uh, explain to us? Uh, give give those who aren't familiar with you in our church family just a little bit of background. Sure. Well, see, so yeah, I've worked at World Relief for a long time since well, I started as an intern in two thousand five. So it's been almost um, more than fifteen years. World Relief is the humanitarian arm of the National Association of Evangelicals. So our mission is to empower local churches to serve the most vulnerable. We do that in various countries around the world and in various cities around the United States. And in the U.S. context in particular, um, we've really focused in when we talked about the vulnerable on refugees and other immigrants. And again, not just directly serving them. Some of, some of the work we do is sort of direct service through our staff, but a lot of it is empowering church-based volunteers to be a part of, of welcoming, particularly welcoming new refugees. So we're one of nine agencies nationally that is authorized by the U.S. State Department to resettle refugees as they arrive in the United States. And we serve a, a lot of other immigrants who come in through other means as well, whether they're seeking asylum or sponsored by family members or whatever the case may be. So, so my particular... Yeah, just, just real quick. So like, so is World Relief, so you use like World Relief's a lot broader than just a resettlement agency then? We are. I mean, we're in a, a dozen or more countries around the world. And okay. so we're focused on the same mission of empowering churches to serve the vulnerable. But like I was just before the pandemic started, I was in Rwanda and Kenya, um, where we work with um, what we call church empowerment zones. Basically, we bring local churches together to identify who's the most vulnerable in their community. And then how can they work together to care for those, whether they're widows or orphans or just those who are living in poverty. Um, and it's the same mission statement. We did end up working with a lot of displaced people in other contexts around the globe as well, whether they're refugees or they're just internally displaced. Um, we actually serve more than 100,000 people in one of the largest displaced person camps in South Sudan. 
um, a camp called Bentu, where we're one of the primary healthcare providers. Um, and then again, we work with the local churches there uh, also. So we're all over the world. Um, my work is really primarily focused on the, the U.S. side of that, which is around refugees and immigrants. Okay. Okay. And what what's the... I know you're the director of the evangel or the even not evangel yeah the evangelical immigration table. What's that? Yeah, so almost ten years ago, World Relief basically got together with the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, the National Association of Evangelicals, um, various other Christian groups. It's now the National Latino Evangelical Coalition, the Council of Christian Colleges and Universities, and basically said, um, you know, this issue of immigration, it's in the news it's kind of become a controversial issue. And we all recognize that most of the conversation in this country around immigration is not a particularly biblical conversation. It's, you know, partisan talking points on one side or the other. So how do we both help local churches to think in biblical ways about the arrival of immigrants into our community? And then also how do we help our elected officials think about biblical principles, you know, not in a partisan way, but what are the biblical principles that ought to be informing at least those who profess to follow Jesus as they think about these issues. So, um, yeah, we've put out, you know, both discipleship resources sort of for churches and, and small groups, things like that, Christian college campuses. And then also occasionally we'll do like letters to members of Congress or to the president and say, here's how we think biblical principles apply on this particular biblical or this particular immigration issue. So like we, our last statement was around the Afghan situation. Lots of people coming from Afghanistan. Man, well, I, I can't thank you enough and actually how how privileged I feel to even get to like get to glean from you in that uh, that that work, but both uh, the coupling of doing the work on the ground that World Relief is doing, coupled with the clarity of uh, voice uh, from a biblical perspective is both super encouraging, but it, it's also a, I just want to thank you. It's a huge resource, I think, in the life of the church. I think it's something that provides clarity for the things that you guys work on and the wording and things like that, I feel like provides clarity for me, even how to like, as I'm wrestling through and thinking through um, uh, current events as they unfold. And so um, I don't know. I, I, I just can't th thank you enough, man. It's, it's oh. really, it's really encouraging. It's very nice to know that somebody reads those things because we put a lot of work into it. And, um, and, you know, getting lots of organizations onto the same page. Uh, these are like-minded organizations, generally speaking, yeah. but, you know, they all represent diverse constituencies who may have slightly nuanced views on how we respond to any particular issue. But um, uh, it's, it's been really encouraging to me because, you know, I've worked with immigrant communities professionally for a long time and, and I live in an immigrant community. These issues are very personal and there's a lot that the church needs to do on the ground. And I'm a big believer in that. But also I think some of the challenges are structural. Like, you know, I can't make somebody a social security card. Like I just don't have the authority to do that. That's a governmental policy decision. I can't bring someone's, you know, brother who's stuck in Afghanistan here. I can't, you know, open the border for them, even though I think they're a great person who should be here. So being able to address some of the policy questions that really are governmental functions, but to say, how do we do that in ways that are consistent with the principles of, of, of the Bible and, um, and bringing the weight of lots of different Christians together to do so is, you know, I wouldn't say it's how it's worked in the sense of changing policies, but at least I think it kind of puts a flag in, um, in the ground and says, you know, this is how we are thinking about this. And as a way that isn't just guided by one party's platform or the other. It's so helpful. Um, so I we I wanted to ask you a little bit about just in this speaking of kind of this current moment, like a little bit about the situation with Afghan refugees. Now uh, we 
we're talking with um, one of our pastors from Iran, uh, Ara, about just the things that he hears and knows and the people that he's been um, connected with. And we we've, we're talking about that recently. This is also a, a topic that I think is, you know, like everything does, like has faded out of the bright spotlight uh, in, you know, media or whatever right now. Right. Um, but the plight is just ongoing. Um, and I, I'd love, I, I'd love just to get from your perspective, um, as you talk with people on the ground, what the the situation is like for Afghan refugees, either in Afghanistan and those uh, here in the States as well right now, what, what yeah. the situation's like? Well, I mean, you're definitely right. Like there's people still paying attention, but it seems like fewer than were two months ago when there was this massive evacuation happening out of Kabul. Um, uh, the U.S. was able to get out a little bit more than 50,000 Afghans and then others who were U.S. citizens or Europeans getting out to, to Europe. Um, of those 50,000, a few of them could be resettled immediately. They had been approved for something called a special immigrant visa. So that's um, basically a special visa for someone who served the U.S. military or some other part of the U.S. government. We resettled a thousand or so people just in the month of August. And some of those before Kabul fell, some very quickly right after Kabul fell. But then most of those 50,000 people were brought, um, first of all, they were brought to third country locations for security vetting and all that, and then often to Qatar or Germany, um, US military bases there. And then once they cleared that vetting, they were brought to the United States where most of them have been on military bases in the US now for about two months, a month and a half or more. Really? Um, we're just starting in the last week or so to see those people being resettled to communities around the United States in significant numbers. So several thousand in the last couple of weeks. And we anticipate the rest of them in the coming weeks. So they're not staying indefinitely on U.S. military bases. There's some, you know, they need vaccines and health screenings and all that. And that's just taken some time. Obviously, it takes a few weeks after getting vaccines, not just with COVID, but measles and all these other, you know, health issues people have to be checked for. But now they're being resettled into communities around the United States. So actually, they're in California. We'll receive more Afghans probably than any other state. A lot of that is fueled by the Sacramento area, which is actually the number one city for Afghan population even before this situation. So when people have a family member they want to go to, they're you know more likely than not to be in a few different cities, Sacramento, also Seattle, DC, um, Dallas. So um, yeah, our, our world relief team in Sacramento has been our busiest office in the last several months. Like they've just been incredibly busy with very large numbers of people arriving. And our work at world relief, it, like the other resettlement agencies, as you know, we, we don't get to choose who comes, but our job is to welcome people as they come to make sure that they have housing, make sure that they, um, the kids get into school fairly quickly, that people find jobs, which frankly right now, housing is very challenging. Jobs are not that challenging. Like there's lots of jobs out there finding an affordable apartment pretty much anywhere in the country, but especially in California, it's very difficult. Um, and that's very difficult for anyone at your church. And then you add that you have no credit history coming in from Afghanistan without a credit history. So that just limits the apartment, you know, the landlords who will rent. Um, so that, yeah, that's the, the biggest part of our work. And again, for World Relief, it's always, um, we wanna be empowering churches to be a part of that process. So how can churches be welcoming people? Basically the job of churches is to be friends um, so that people come in and they have someone who can, you know, work with them through learn. So some of the folks already don't know English, like if they're a translator for the US military, they're gonna speak English already, but many others will not know any English. So there's a language barrier, certainly for everyone, a pretty significant cultural 
um, barrier to overcome and having someone who will sort of work patiently with you through those cultural adjustment process and just, you know, help in that process of, of integration is, is really helpful. So that's for the people already here. And then I do want to say it's, I appreciate you asking, well, what about the people still, you know, trying to get out Yeah. as the attention's kind of moved to the people who are being resettled here. We're obviously very busy helping people who are arriving now, but as a policy matter, we don't think it's acceptable that the U S left a lot of people behind who are at particular risk. Now, in many cases, because of their service to the U S government, in other cases, because they are ethnic or religious minorities. Um, so, you know, we are continuing to advocate. It's frankly very, I don't know what the solution to that is. There's not a very, um, you know, there's no U.S. governmental presence in Afghanistan at this point. So it's not with the military withdrawn. The easier way to do this would have been to do that evacuation before withdrawing the military. And we said that, you know, several months ago. Now this is what the situation is. And it's, you know, incredibly challenging for certain groups, people who are, it's challenging for most of most Afghans, unfortunately, but especially for those who are going to be uniquely targeted by the Taliban. Mm. And I mean, and that's like, we're talking like tens, hundreds of thousands of people, right? Like, I mean, and the reality is like Afghanistan has been one of the top five countries producing refugees for decades, like before the situation. Pakistan has been one of the top five host countries for refugees for decades because it's a neighboring country and not everyone goes to Pakistan. Some are going to Turkey, some are going or through Iran to Turkey. Some are actually going through Iran and Turkey trying to get to Europe. So like if you recall the images in the news of people on boats five years ago who are mostly Syrians, but frankly, some of them were Afghans then too. Unfortunately, we're likely to see more desperate people trying to get out and trying to get to a safe place for that, them and the, their families. Um, you know, this, the 50,000 people the U.S. got out is important and we're eager to welcome them, but there's a lot of other vulnerable Afghans who are, I mean, honestly, like women, like that's half the population. And we know that Afghanistan, the Taliban, it is not, I mean, they don't basically allow women to be educated. They're very restricted in what's available to them. So a lot of people who've had that taste of of opportunity are going to want to go outside of the country to find a place where their God-given talents can be, you know, can be pursued. Matt, did I read um, somewhere that almost 50% of the um, settled refugees in America are children? Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. around there? I think it was a little bit more than 50%, if I'm not mistaken. Um, okay. And we just got that data. This process has been I don't want to say unorderly, but like we don't always have quite the same level of information in advance because it's been so fast. I mean, usually the refugees we are resettling have been sitting in some camp for 10 years before they get the opportunity to be resettled. I'm glad that we didn't make these particular Afghans wait that long, um, especially I think there's a unique sort of moral obligation from the U.S. government for those who you know are at risk because they serve the U.S. military. They had to get out fast. But it has like we're getting data now about the people who've been in the United States for a month. Um, like, oh, what percentage are children? Um, you know, what percentage are on what basis did they qualify to come? They again, and that's not to say, you know, they haven't very thoroughly screened in terms of the security dynamics of all this. Again, these are people who serve the US military in a lot of cases, which they screen you before they let you do that. Um, but it's a lot of kids and a lot of large families so far. I mean, we don't always know who's coming, but and that makes housing even more challenging. We've got a family of eight or nine to find a housing for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
when you when you um, when you work with churches to uh, on that side of things, the mentor provide friendship, encouragement, support. Um, obviously, that transition is um, so jarring for for people uh, culturally. I mean, the the loss and grief of of being displaced. Um, what is that like? What does that look like for uh, maybe, especially on the kids side? What does it look like for getting connected to schools and what kind of support um, is provided there for for uh, you know? I, not that I mean, I think our heart and our com- compassion and representing Christ's love to people in this situation is for all of them. But I think about the vulnerable of the vulnerable. I think about yeah. some of the kids and, and the, the di- kind of disruption and, and trauma that that can cause for them. Um, what does that kind of support look like in, in that context? Yeah. In, in most of our offices, we've got a whole team of, of staff um, working specifically with, with children. So that is somebody's job is to basically be the liaison to the schools. Um, um, you know, we work with amazing school districts and amazing teachers who, you know, are really passionate about serving these kids well, but they do have some unique needs coming in, both in terms of language and cultural adjustment. Um, but then also, I mean, especially coming from Afghanistan, the really recent trauma that they have lived through, like really, I mean, there's other groups of refugee who have been basically marginalized their entire lives. And that's the trauma they've experienced, but they were living in a camp setting for, you know, they moved in, the kids were often born in those camps. In this case, it was like they were in school six months ago in Afghanistan, and now they're in the United States. And it's just a really jarring, you know, they lived through that airport evacuation, which was, I mean, a, a significant number of people, both Afghans and U.S. servicemen and women lost their life in a terrorist attack that was connected to the evacuation effort outside of the airport. This is a, an incredible amount of trauma that these kids have gone through and their parents, but um, you know, we want to be really sensitive to that and help support them as they adjust. Um, well, we do think find that you know, children, God has made children incredibly resilient. Um, sometimes, frankly, kids, I mean, they're almost always likely to learn the language faster than their parents. Again, some of these parents already speak English, but in the cases where their parents don't, that's true of immigrants kind of across the board. Like it's just the way God made our brains that a seven-year-old will pick up a new language a lot faster than a 35-year-old or a 70-year-old. Um, and even that can create some, I mean, challenges where sometimes kids end up being the translators for their family, you know, a year or so in. And, um, you know, there's just a lot of responsibility put on children sometimes that is not typical for most American families. And that's the dynamic we want to be really sensitive to as well and help, you know, sometimes it's just even helping um, families understand, you know, how discipline works in the United States within a family setting, um, which might be different culturally than in some other parts of the world. Um, you know, how the school system works, how the medical system works, which like I'm a parent and I don't understand how the medical system works in this country. So like try doing that in a foreign language and, um, you know, in a system that's very different than what you're used to, it's just very complicated. As you, Matt, as, as you work with churches, as you engage with uh, local churches and even networks of churches, like what what's your hope for how the church would respond, both like practically and even and even like mindset wise, as we as these tragedies in our world unfold? Yeah, you know, I, I probably shared this when I spoke there. Um, 
whenever that was several years back, because I, I do this often in my Sunday morning talks, but we did this survey a few years ago and found that only 12% of evangelical Christians say that their views on issues of immigration are primarily influenced by the Bible. And that to me is a scandal, right? Like I mean, yeah. that by our own admission, and you expect people to kind of lie on a survey like this and know that the Bible is the right answer. <laughs> I mean, if they're self-described evangelical Christians, yeah. um, but even with that taken into account, more people said the media informs their view primarily than said the Bible or their local church or the views of national Christian leaders. I think of a big part of my job. And again, I have colleagues who do the harder work of like on the ground, you know, working with particular families and connecting volunteers. A lot of my job is addressing that sort of deficit of discipleship because we often start in the wrong spot where we're taking our cues from Fox news or from CNN or from Facebook or Twitter and not from the scriptures. So I, I would love for our response sort of collectively as the church to be um, thoroughly rooted in the Bible. And that's, you know, to be really clear, I'm not saying the Bible tells you how many Afghan refugees should be able to come this year. And, you know, it's, you know I'm not saying you're going to get like specifics of immigration policy there, but there are some pretty clear instructions about how to treat your immigrant neighbor. I mean, it's really hard to, to read through the whole of the scriptures and wrestle with how this applies and conclude that we should probably shun those people and, you know, and be afraid of them. Like that's just not the message of the Bible. Yeah. And so I, you know, one of the passages I always go back to is in Matthew five, where Jesus talks, you know, to his disciples. And I think you can extrapolate that to the church about being a city on a hill, uh, letting your light shine before others, that they would see your good deeds and praise our father in heaven. And I was mindful that, you know, different politicians throughout us history have used that phrase of a city on a hill to talk about the United States. And I think we should be careful about that because that's not actually the context of the scriptures. Like God wasn't talking to the United States of America um, when he talked about a shining city on a hill, uh, although it makes for great rhetoric. And I, I sort of like that idea in terms of an immigration policy that, you know, we are a beacon of hope. I'd love for the, our country to be that. But in its context, Jesus is talking to the church. And that's, you know, I think about the literally tens of millions of people around our world who are displaced for one reason or another, some of whom might eventually make it to the United States, most of whom probably will not, but they are forming their opinions. And I should say many of them, brothers and sisters in Christ, um, some of them refugees because they were first Christians and persecuted for their faith. Yeah. Others who have never met a Christian in their life. And that's particularly common, frankly, in Afghanistan. It's actually the country, the only country in the world where the center for the study of global Christianity says that less than 3% of the non-Christian population personally knows a Christian. Like it's mm. fairly rare to know a Christian if you live in Afghanistan. But whatever the situation, brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are not followers of Jesus, they are likely to form their opinions um, about Christians, especially those who are not believers, based on the response of professed followers of Jesus to a global refugee crisis. Whether that is a response characterized by love and hospitality and advocacy or by apathy or even fear and hostility. And I think, you know, we can all think of examples across that spectrum from the American church. And our hope at World Relief, and certainly my hope personally, is that uh, our response would be so Christ-like that it would, you know, that people would see our good deeds and give glory to our Father in heaven. And that would actually draw people to him. Yeah. Matt, can you talk a little bit about hospitality? I mean, you say the word hospitality, it's such an interesting thing because number one, in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, principally, there are there's such like a, a, a call for Christians to be hospitable and what that means and not just a, you know, yeah. um, 
I, I vacuumed the carpet before some people came over right. for, for, for a dinner or something like that. But, I, but also your experience, especially with displaced people, the, the ethic of hospitality and what that means in these communities that are just, it's such a, 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 a significant component of what it means even culturally for many of the people, for many of the cultures where these people are coming from around the world, the, the, the posture of hospitality and what that means to loving and caring for and honoring and seeing somebody as made in the image of God, as a human who, who matters and has value in Christ's eyes. Can you, can you speak to that a little bit? Just the word hospitality jumped out in my mind as you said that. Yeah. You know, in, so in the new Testament, in the Greek hospitality is philoxenia, which is, the love of strangers, you know, it's, we can like, like Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Xenia is where, because xenophobia, the fear of strangers. So it's when in Romans 12, for example, when we're told to practice hospitality, that says practice loving strangers, which, mm. you know, I think we can acknowledge for most Americans, it's kind of a countercultural command. Like mm. I, I grew up watching Saturday morning cartoons with public service announcements about stranger danger, right? Like strangers are scary people don't take their candy, except yes. I guess Halloween, yeah. that's somehow okay. I never understood that. But, um, but uh, you know, I, you can like, find them because you can find, you can find where they live, you know, yeah. but, even, <laughs> but even then Halloween, there's a lot of fear about, you know, what people are putting in putting Halloween in candy. candy. Yeah. You know, you know, there's a syringe in a Halloween candy, watch out or whatever. Yeah. Well, I, obviously I'm all for protecting children, but I do think sometimes <laughs> our kind of the, the dominant cultural attitude towards people who are unknown to us or different from us is suspicion or fear. And that's true in an interpersonal level sometimes where we kind of avert our eyes if we see someone who's dressed differently or we don't know where they're from. And then on a national sort of, I mean, it's sort of part of the national dialogue in some ways as well, like people from a different place as a potential threat. Now, I'm not gonna tell you the Bible promises that all strangers are safe, but I can tell you that we're commanded to love them. Um, and so if we do talk about hospitality in the church, it seems to often get relegated to like women's ministry, which there's no real gendered component to the command to be hospitable. It's for men and women. Yeah, in fact, yeah. it's a requirement for leadership in the church and first Timothy yeah. and Titus comes right after or before I forget, um, you know, being a good teacher, which yeah. most pastoral searches, there's a lot of focus on, can this person teach and often less on, do they love strangers? Yeah. It's uh, a, qual a qualification for eldership, right? So, yeah. 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 So, I mean, all that to say, and then to your to your point, Matt. I mean, so I, that obviously has ramifications how we treat immigrants. I think you know pretty obviously, and yet in another sense, my own experience has been that immigrants have been my mentors in hospitality. Like I, you know, I lived in an apartment complex for a number of years, where most of my neighbors were were refugees or other immigrants. Literally, like I would eat three dinners a day because people would. <laughs> want to like, I'd be walking by and they'd be like, you know, Mateo, come eat this food. Or, you know, I eat Mexican food and Rwandan food and Iranian food all in one day. And I gained 45 pounds. Um, so there's some liabilities there. Um, but like, <laughs> like that's not normal in the United States of America. Like people kind of fold up their sidewalks at night and don't, you know, they don't know their neighbors. Most immigrants, not all, I mean, they come from diverse places, but generally they come from places with much more communal societies where not even just those who are part of your existing community, but where you welcome people in. And I think we have a lot to learn. And again, that's the context in which the Bible is written, which, you know, makes some sense. Yeah. Um, but in Hebrews 13, we're told that by welcoming strangers, some people have entertained angels without realizing it. And I think when we 
when our presumption is to see strangers or immigrants as a potential threat to us, we're also missing out on something that, you know, God may have purposes in their arrival. And I think even just on a missiological level, you see that the church is growing in the United States. Well, it's not growing overall. If you look at the net figures, it's not growing. But if you look among immigrant communities, it is. And that's bringing a lot of vitality. And again, that's both through people who are already strong Christians when they come to this country. And that's probably more common, actually. But it's also people who come from like entirely unreached people groups who would be very unlikely to encounter the gospel had they stayed in their country of origin. But they come to our context where we are blessed with religious freedom, where we're free to share our faith and people are free to receive it or to reject it. And, and to be really clear, we're not, at least at World Relief, we're not talking about proselytism where we're like tricking people into conversion or, you know, we don't serve people better if they will pray a prayer or something like that. But we do believe in evangelism rightly understood, which is an open invitation to a relationship with Christ. And very often that's going to happen, you know, it's as much more like it happened when people have been welcomed by people who love them as their neighbors, which we're called to do, whether someone would ever share our faith or not. But when we do that, well, there's often going to be the question of, of why. And we get to, as first Peter says, to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's within you. And my hope, and this kind of goes back to your question, Scott, of is really that the church in the U S and elsewhere would be so marked by that hospitality that love strangers, that we would be begging that question of why do you love us so much? Mm. And I'm not sure that that's always our reputation right now. Yeah. 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 I, man, I, I appreciate that. This mm. is such a helpful encouragement. I, um, you know, it's, it's even just to connect a few dots, even as people are listening, I think the Lord's like, weaving these things together. I know we, we tried to connect for, it's been a couple of months. We've been <laughs> playing, playing phone tech, trying to connect this way, but I think the timing's perfect. I mean, it's interesting. We're going to release this podcast next, next week. Um, and this Sunday, uh, one of our pastors, Reggie is preaching on, on loving our enemy and the upside down nature of that. And I, even just in, in light of that same concept of, of the, the radical call of God that is oftentimes upside down from what either our, our, our flesh says or what the world expects, um, I think hand in hand with that goes loving the stranger and and thinking about hospitality in the, the those terms in terms of loving stranger is such a um, I think it's so helpful. It's so helpful. I um, and, I, and I also know that there's there's a number of people in our church family that are um, that have a huge heart for that, that are engaged in that to varying degrees and in and in different ways and are are seeking to to, to manifest that I, I'd love just to hear some practical wisdom from you as somebody, not just even on a, on a policy level, but just on a personal level, as you've lived that out. Um, I think that a lot of our people find it uh, both like they, they have that heart and as they get engaged though, like kind of like you said, they find it complicated and and messy and, and difficult and not super simple um, or, you know, cut and dry and, and not even always exactly sure like what to do like is is it is it loving for me to eat this third meal is it like how do i you know how do i get and and um and and dealing with particularly dealing with people that are have experienced all sorts of different types of trauma and meeting them in the midst of the complicated motives and, and dynamics going on in their heart um i, I would just love to hear from your practical experience, any wisdom or principles or things that as our people engage with others from immigrants, refugees from, from any different place. Um, uh, yeah. Any, any wisdom that, that, that you could offer us in the midst of that as we're trying to do that. Yeah. I mean, you all have the benefit of being in Los Angeles where like 
there are a lot of immigrants. I mean, there's yeah. more immigrants in LA than, you know, I mean, almost anywhere else in the world. Like it's an incredibly diverse city. And yet I do know it's also possible to live in a diverse place and, you know, live in kind of a, a social bubble where you don't interact with those people. And, yeah. you know, I live outside of Chicago. It's not that different. And yet I would say there's plenty of, you know, people who never actually interact with immigrants or don't know their names. So I think the a first step is just like, be friendly. Like that sounds super basic, but smile at people, ask questions as you, you know, maybe put yourself in circumstances, like go to a different grocery store than you're used to, mm-hmm. where they sell some foods that you're not used to eating and just be friendly and interact with people. Um, you know, as interacting people just out and about, you know, not in an obnoxious way or like an accusatory way, but ask people, you know, so where are you from originally? What was it like there? What do you miss about your country? You know, what, you know, just getting, have, being willing to be inquisitive, I think goes a long way. Um, and you, there will probably be cultural missteps. That's sort of inevitable, but also if you're really going to invest in a friendship, kind of do your homework on like, Oh, what is it that my, you know, my Muslim friend believes and maybe don't read just like Christian books about what Muslims believe, but ask your Muslim friends what they believe. Cause sometimes there's kind of this, like, I mean, you can find a Christian who will tell you that Christians believe different things than what you think Christians believe. And same is true of Muslims. Like, like let people sort of define it for you for themselves, what it is that they believe or Hindus or Buddhists or whatever, or Christians of different traditions. I mean, we've got people coming from kind of an Orthodox Christian background often from the Middle East, just, you know, it's, there's a respect that's involved in wanting to listen to people and hear their story. Not so that you can like rebut them or, um, but, or solve a problem, but just to understand what their story is and not in a pushy way. Cause you know, people have gone through things they may not want to talk about, but you know, building a relationship of, of trust and of being willing to listen and to understand. Um, so those are pretty basic things, but I think um, those are good places to start. And sometimes it's, intentionally putting yourself in some circumstances where you're going to be interacting with people who are different than you, which is easier in Los Angeles than, uh, you know, I don't pick on any particular state, but there's a lot less diverse places in the United States than Los Angeles. But like you said, Matt, it, it, it's what's hard about it is there's a, because Los Angeles is so big. And for us, we've noticed this here, you can kind of carve out your own comfortable space. And there's a, there's an opportunity to, even in the midst of, you know, uh, a lot of diversity from people from all over the world to, to pull yourself away from that. Um, you know, if, if you're, if you're listening and you're part of Cornerstone, there's a, a million different opportunities we have to help you connect you in these ways. If you're looking around at neighbors and you're like, I don't, not sure where or who or what, what is the next step here? If you're looking, how do I build a relationship with someone who's, you know, a refugee from Iran? How do I build a relationship with someone who's, um, here from uh, India, you know, Scott, you had the Bowers on the other day talking about oh, yeah. um, working with international students. And there's a million ways to, to connect on that side, but it requires a posture of being willing to put yourself out of what is a most comfortable or what uh, is easiest. And for some people, I think in LA, being here is already hard enough just because there's crazy traffic and crazy amount of people and everything. Um, but it's a call and a unique call for us in a city like this to say, what does it look like to love our neighbor? So something that simple that you said earlier, what does it look to love our neighbors when we have neighbors from hundreds of countries around the world um, and thousands of different ethnic groups? And um, and what does it look like to put yourself in a position to represent Christ well and love well um, here? Yeah. yeah. That's so 
I think that's exactly it. And I think it hits the, the, you touch on Maddie, the, um, tension point, I think for a lot of us, right. Where we can like assume just because like diversity is around us that we're like engaged with it. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I want to hit on, I'd love to hear just, just last maybe a piece, at least from me, Matt, I'd love to hear you expand a little bit. And you mentioned earlier when I was talking about hospitality, about how you've been discipled by others and and, and taught what Christian hospitality looks like. I think there's also a, a way in which um, we can assume that because someone is in a more difficult situation um, or they've come from a more difficult place or, you know, they, they don't speak English as clearly as we do, that 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 having something to offer only goes one way. Yeah. Right. That I need to engage in these relationships because simply as a giver. Um, but I think that the Lord's knitting the church together in a much more dynamic way than that. I think you've ex- experienced that. I'd, I'd love to hear you expand on that a little bit. Yeah. yeah we talk a lot about what really about mutually transformative relationships. And that's really what we see is our goal is helping to facilitate those mutual relationships that are not, I mean, you know, when a refugee family arrives, they're going to have a lot of needs. Like they need a place to live and they need, you know, they need some food the first day they arrive and they're going to need a job and all that stuff and they need friendship, but it, they also have a lot to offer. And I think it, if we forget that dynamic, if we forget that they're as much a person made in the image of God as, as anyone else, we can have a, you know, an unhelpful approach and, like you said, I've certainly seen that. I mean, I, I was actually just, um, my wife and I were talking about this the other night in the apartment complex where we used to live. The, there was a large Karen Burmese community. So this is actually one of the largest resettlement groups in the U.S. or from Southeast Asia. Largely Christians, actually, although coming from a largely non-Christian context, that's actually a big part of why they're refugees. They're The government in Burma does not really tolerate religious minorities, whether Christians or Muslims. So there's actually a a Karen Burmese Baptist church that met in the apartment right underneath where I lived um, for a couple of years. Um, I would know that church was happening because there was like 40 sets of shoes outside of the apartment <laughs> and, and like really loud worship music. But, um, you know, we just have learned so much from those friends and, and sisters and brothers in Christ. I mean, literally like some of them have been at our door to make sure that we know who Jesus is. And frankly, though, I've been a Christian most of my life. I've had a lot to learn about following Jesus from people who were persecuted for their faith, which is something that I don't think most Americans, I mean, sometimes even the way we talk about persecution in, in the U S kind of is sort of insulting to people who've actually experienced actual persecution. Like if your Starbucks cup didn't say Merry Christmas, like that was not persecution. Like that was marketing. <laughs> That's not, you know, some of the sort of the ways we talk about that in the U S are unhelpful, but there, we have sisters and brothers in Christ who've gone through actual persecution for their faith in Jesus and have had their faith really refined by that. Um, and even just, like I said, like in terms of hospitality, I remember the, this apartment where we used to live, there was this kind of awkward older white guy who like we had, I don't know, he's, he was, I think he was sort of homeless. He'd kind of like couch surf with different people. We just thought he was sort of awkward. We kind of avoided him. Like, I'm not proud to say that, but like, if I'm honest, that was sort of our approach. The Karen Burmese community, like, through broken English was just like found out that he didn't have a place to live and invited him to live with them. Like, like different families. It's like, okay, well, we'll take care of you. He became part of this current speaking church. He doesn't know what's going on, but he knew that these people cared about him. And it was really challenging to me. It's like, Oh, I guess that is a more Christ-like response than 
averting our eyes and, you know, <laughs> not wanting to run into him in the apartment courtyard. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, actually, I found that from a number of different refugee groups. They are like shocked that we have homelessness in the United States. Like that's not something like that is very common in many of, you know, I don't know all the countries, but some of the countries that refugees come from because families just take care of people no matter what their issues are. And um, uh, and that's not, you know, it's, that's a complicated issue, not my expertise in any way, but it, it's just been really challenging to me, like hmm. people who have a lot fewer resources in many cases, but are super generous with what they do have and who also have a breadth of experience and, and faith that often I think has a lot to teach American Christians. Mm. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I, I think that that's been my experience too and continues to be. And um, I think it's a good challenge too, as we think through how I, I, I love that, that phrase, the mutually transformative relationships, right. That the Lord's calling us into, I think particularly when, we're engaged with anybody who's um, uh, marginalized in any situation. But um, so at, as we wrap up then, I mean, just if you're listening to this, you're part of Cornerstone and you want to get involved, you want to get more connected to uh, whether it's refugees or, or immigrants in our church family. We have, uh, you know, people that are newly Im- immigrants in our English speaking, English speaking portion of our family. We have people that are new, newer immigrants in our Spanish speaking portion of our family. We have people that are newer immigrants in our Farsi speaking portion of our family would, would love to find ways to get you connected. Like Matt said, with the um, international students, uh, there's all sorts of different opportunities. Um, World relief is, has, has an office in orange County um, has some really busy offices, obviously right now in Sacramento um, in, you mentioned Modesto too. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of Africans come to Modesto also, and other immigrants and, also. And so, and particularly if if any of you either have connections there, uh, uh, maybe and are you know on your way there, or maybe you've moved there and you're still you know listening to the podcast here. Um, the uh, I mean, we've run into this where World Relief isn't doing a ton of resettlement in West Los Angeles, um, but there's still a lot of different opportunities. And um, and if you're listening, I would highly commend the evangelical immigration table to you just to be up, uh, just to be up, up and, and even it's just getting their um, emails and being informed and being strengthened by the, the work that's going on um, there as well. Uh, and any, any other ways we, um, yeah, any other ways we can connect people in or e- either Matt um, or ways you. Well, I, I, I was just thinking, you know, over the last, I think in the last few years, the U.S. has resettled really few, just such a small number of refugees, yeah. which is um, uh, extremely unfortunate and probably born out of a lot of misguided policies. But you have um, transitions and different ebbs and flows. And for for me, as I think about this, you know, obviously the the situation in Afghanistan, but for me, I think I want to I want to push people in our church to have a global perspective of what's going on, what God's doing around the world, in a way that is recognizing that there are IDP camps. There's um, uh, people who are displaced in uh, any war you see, you know, which is maybe a war in a place on page uh, eight of your news. Well, I guess people don't have newspaper, whatever. Uh, you know, further down, clicking in in, in you know, on your news uh, stories that might just be a single thing. There's people and there's people who probably many of them uh, hopefully will be resettled here in the States. And 
the you know the eleven thousand or whatever in our fiscal year eleven uh, uh, or twenty twenty one should be and probably will be uh, higher in years to come, closer to sixty hundred thousand people being resettled here every year. This is going to be continue to be a you know it might go out of the news story like you said earlier, Scotty, about for for a season. Um, but this is uh, a a continual call for us. That's not just when things are in the news. And, and so that's why we want to, we want to call you to have that global perspective and be involved in these ways always in, in, in different capacities um, and serving and, and loving your community. So, yeah, I and mean, I just wanted to say that Absolutely. because it's like the numbers have gone down so much, but um, this is not going to, this is not going to stop anytime, anytime soon, Matt, you can, you can. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's definitely true. And that's part of why, you know, we are concerned about the policy questions because, you know, it, it's, going from a normal of like 75 or 80,000 refugees to 11,000. That's a lot of people who aren't going to have the protections and safety and freedoms that our country could offer them. Um, and frankly, a lot of American churches that don't have that ministry opportunity to welcome them either. Yeah. But it is a season where we're hopeful and expectant that the numbers will be going back up both with the Afghan situation and just, you know, with policy changes. Um, that's exciting. It's also challenging. I mean, we're expecting to resettle more people at World Relief at a national level in the next three months than we have in the last three years. And that's, wow. again, we're like excited, but also a little overwhelmed by that idea. Yeah. And having come all at once, it's challenging with housing and, um, you know, just staff capacity. So, yeah, we'd appreciate people praying for our, our team and um, around the country and, and around the world who, I mean, a lot of the work we do are ultimately addressing some of the root causes of why people are migrating in terms of whether that's poverty or conflict or persecution. So, and people can learn more about what World Relief does at worldrelief.org. And we'd love to have more people be involved as well. And then, as you mentioned, Scott, the evangelical immigration table is just evangelicalimmigrationtable.com. Okay. And, and your book coming out in May. And a book coming out in May. book coming out in May. See, yeah. the, the problem with guys like you, Matt, is you're like, you're, you know, you're humble. You're not going to mention that unless we say it, you know, like you're, we, we have to say it because I'm sure it's going to be a, a book that will bless people and you can pre-order it now. See? Thank you for doing the promotion. I do find, <laughs> I find kind of uncomfortable, um, but I'm sure my, the publisher would like me to do more of. So yeah, the new book is called Inalienable. I'm going to have to learn the subtitle. Um, it's out in May. Um, but the basic idea is it, it's actually, it's with a couple of friends. Um, uh, as you mentioned, Matt, Daniel Yang, who's at the Wheaton College of the Graham Center, and then Eric Costanza, who's a pastor down in Oklahoma, really looking at like, you know, we really, all the three of us really believe in the church. And we're also pretty concerned about the state of the church in the U.S. Like there's some things that seem to have gone off. So really asking the question, how do we look to global Christian leaders and look at some at marginalized voices within the United States for some leadership and guidance um, for the American church? So that's the basic idea. Mm. And it won't be out till May, but you can pre-order it now. It's on all those sites that sell books. And, and we have Seeking Refuge in our resource library in the sanctuary as we well. Yeah, you, can as, just, you can pick it up on Sunday. Pick it up on Sunday. I think we we have welcoming the stranger. I don't know if we have it out there, but I, we have it here. Other other we have a few extra resources of that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you're looking for resources, you know, or if you want to just you know meet every um, every Iranian refugee in Los Angeles, talk to Pastor Ara, and he'll introduce you to every single person in the world. They uh, all have his number. 
they all have a <laughs> number. So it becomes a small, it becomes a small cookie. <laughs> so you get a call every day. Uh, but thank you so I'll, much, Matt. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much for taking this time. And we really, I uh, honestly, not, not only just appreciate it personally, but I, I, I feel really privileged that you would carve out this time for our church family. I know that there's just a ton of ways in which the Lord is is working in a ton that, that you've got going on. And so um, it, it really does mean a lot. And I think is um, is a huge, huge blessing for us as a church family. Yeah, so we can't great, to, great to connect with you guys again. Thanks for reaching out. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Right. We'll talk soon. Thanks so much. Thanks, Matt. And, uh, and thanks everybody for listening. We'll see you on Sunday.